Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. Kristen, um, so my friend Tom used to do stand-up comedy. He's a very funny guy. He used to have radio shows and stuff like that. And the source of a lot of his comedy was his family. Um, very kooky bunch. Uh, very funny ladies. And one of his bits was imitating his Aunt Martha, who has a very, very thick northern accent. And he would tell this whole story about how Aunt Martha's uterus fell out. And it was really funny, and I never really knew it was a thing or that it had a name or that it was common. But apparently, Aunt Martha is not alone. In a uterus falling out? No. And it's called uterine prolapse. Yeah. Uh, today on the podcast, we are talking about what happens when your uterus falls out. It can also happen in other areas. And sometimes it can bring other inside parts outside with it. And yeah, prolapse is not the most pleasant topic of conversation. Also, not the most pleasant Google image search. Don't. Yeah, don't. I recommend you not do that. Don't. But it is something that happens. This was coming from uh, a listener request. A younger listener actually wrote in because uh, she had a medical scare and thought that uh, she had prolapse, but it turned out, thankfully, to be something else. But when we started doing some more research, come to find out prolapse is something that does happen to a lot of older women in particular. But let's back up a little bit. Yeah, what is it? What is it? Well, it's when your pelvic floor muscles and ligaments stretch and weaken, providing inadequate support for the uterus, if we're talking specifically, obviously, about uterine prolapse, and the uterus will then slip down into or protrude out of the vagina. Yes. There you go. Yes. Uh, there are several risk factors. Most of them have to do with age, menopause, whether you have had children, and whether you do a lot of heavy lifting. If all of those apply to you, Watch out for the following symptoms. Um, there's a sensation of heaviness and pulling in your pelvis, tissue actually protruding from your vagina. Often urinary problems accompany this condition, so you might have leakage or urine retention. There's also low back pain and trouble having bowel movements because the bowel movements kind of come into play if, if your rectum is involved in the dropping into the vagina. Yeah, incontinence is one of the first and most common signs of prolapse. And then you might also have uh, concerns such as sensing looseness in the tone of your vaginal tissue if you are having intercourse. Um, and sometimes symptoms that are less bothersome in the morning and worsen as the day goes on. And that's because gravity will also aggravate these symptoms because it pulls that tissue downward. Yeah. So, okay. So what is, what is the deal with, with this happening to women who have had babies? Like why, why does this happen? What's going on up in there? Pregnancy and trauma incurred during childbirth, particularly if you've had a large baby or a difficult labor and delivery can really cause a lot of that muscle weakness and stretching 
of the supporting tissues. So that's just another thing that women have to go through when they're having babies. Yeah, and uh, vaginal births in particular are implicated with this. Uh, doctors and pregnant women have been looking into whether or not C-sections, elective C-sections, are the way to go because it is associated with a lowered risk of pelvic organ prolapse. That's not to say that it's completely preventative, um, but some women are now opting for, they're called maternal choice C-sections, partially because of the risk of prolapse. Um, and just to give you an idea of how many women experience this, uh, this is from the Honor Society of Nursing. Approximately 9% of U.S. women require surgery for pelvic prolapse, which is part of a uh, series of conditions which are referred to as pelvic floor disorders. And almost 24% of American women will experience at least one pelvic floor disorder, such as prolapse, in their lifetime. Yeah, there are a lot of risk factors for this. Um, we, we touched on a few already, but COPD even plays a part, which is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, which ties into the chronic coughing thing. So if there's a lot of, if you've done a lot of coughing in your lifetime, you could have uterine prolapse. Um, also chronic constipation. If you've had a lifetime history of straining on the toilet, this could also affect rectal prolapse. And obesity is another big factor that uh, doctors are looking cl- more closely at, and especially for, again, uh, women who are pregnant and overweight or obese, uh, doctors might advise for a, a C-section because of those combined risk factors for prolapse down the road. Um, and there are other types of prolapse aside from uterine prolapse. We have rectal Prolapse, uh, where it's the lower end of the colon above the anus gets stretched out and protrudes out of the anus. Um, and it is more common in women. It seems like all of all the, all the varieties of prolapse, the colorful bouquet of prolapse types that can happen, more common in women. Yeah, there's also bladder prolapse um, because in women, the front wall of the vagina supports the bladder. And so that wall can weaken due to age or bodily stress. And if it deteriorates enough, the bladder can actually descend into the vagina. And this type of prolapse is commonly associated with menopause. Now, the listener who wrote in requesting an episode on prolapse was especially concerned because she was outside of the typical age range where you see this happening because she was younger. I think she was in her mid-20s, maybe her early 30s. But a lot of times uh, it affects postmenopausal women who have had more than one vaginal delivery uh, even though it can affect still women of any age. Yeah, and part of this might have to do with hormones and loss of muscle tone associated with aging. And a 2008 uh, Harvard study looked at pelvic organ prolapse and wanted to find out over the course of the reproductive life cycle, who's getting surgery for this? So uh, women of reproductive age, there's seven per 10,000 women getting it. Uh, 28.8% of those women experience surgical complications. Perimenopausal women, 24 per 10,000. Postmenopausal, 31 per 10,000. And in elderly women, it's 17 per 10,000. So definitely postmenopausal, it's most common, followed by perimenopausal and then elderly. 
But again, it can still happen among the younger cohorts as well. Uh, there's also been research into whether or not there is a genetic factor to prolapse. There's an article from 2010 published in Urology Times, a real page turner, uh, talking about how recent studies have uncovered a genetic component, component of both pelvic organ prolapse and stress urinary incontinence, though not from the same chromosome. And so uh, they're trying to figure out whether or not doctors could target patients who might have those genetic components for early prevention. Right, because they are, they are pretty related. People who have Prolapse issues tend to have incontinence issues also. Now, Kristen mentioned obesity earlier, and it's kind of touchy as to whether it's a cause or a related factor. Um, a 2004 Swedish study found that obesity is an associated factor for pelvic floor dysfunction, uh, particularly obesity, not just being overweight. And a January 2012 study from Brown University found that a higher proportion of obese women reported feeling vaginal bulging compared with women who were simply overweight. I'm going to go ahead on a side note and say I hope this is maybe the only time in the podcast we have the opportunity to use the phrase vaginal bulging. Yes. <laughs> and now back to our regularly scheduled prolapse podcast. Um, yes, uh, six months. This is still with the Brown University study. Six months after going on a weight loss program, uh, these participants didn't find any significant differences in self-reported bothersome prolapse symptoms. So that's why they're not exactly sure whether, like, what role specifically being overweight or obese might play with this because even after they lost the weight, the symptoms didn't go away. Right. And this ties in closely with a 2009 study published in Obstetrics and Gynecology, which found that, yes, again, being overweight or obese is associated with progression of pelvic organ prolapse. But weight loss, just like in this other study, this more recent study, weight loss didn't really seem to be significantly associated with the regression of it. So that suggests that damage to the pelvic floor related to weight gain could be irreversible if if they are indeed as closely connected as people suspect. Well, and there's also another irreversible kind of uh, contributing factor possibly to your risk of prolapse, and that is... Ethnicity and race. There have been a number of studies looking at the prevalence rates among different ethnic groups, and they've found that overall Hispanic women are at the highest risk of prolapse, and white women pretty much in the middle. Black women demonstrate the lowest risk for prolapse. Now, we mentioned an earlier study about uh, pelvic organ prolapse surgery and the age groups, you know, that it's more common in postmenopausal women. Uh, a Harvard study from 2006 uh, looked at 2003 rates of surgery according to ethnic groups. They found that uh, between white women, black women, and women of other races, White women had the most surgeries for this condition, 14.8 per 10,000. Black women came in second at 5.6 per 10,000. And women of other races and ethnic groups came in at 8.7 
per 10,000. And it looks like, according to this study, black women, although they had far fewer surgeries for this condition than white women did, they had higher complications. 34.1% of black women who had the surgery had surgical complications versus 19.4% of white women and 27.4% of women of other races. And so they came to the conclusion that this could be an issue of race, racial disparities, access to surgery, whether you're on public assistance, etc. So speaking of surgery, what can be done if uh, you know you end up in this situation where you have un- these unpleasant things going on with your pelvic floor muscles? Uh, there are self-care treatments. We've talked about Kegel exercises before on the podcast, and those have been shown to strengthen pelvic muscles. Uh, maintaining a healthy weight and avoiding heavy lifting are a couple of other things. There's also something called a vaginal pessary, which is a device that can be either temporary or permanent that fits inside the vagina and literally holds the uterus in place. Yeah, that I don't I don't know what that looks like, but I, it sounds uncomfortable. It looks like a little a little ring. It reminded me almost of the, the NuvaRing hmm. birth control. I hope it stays in place if you have a temporary one. Um, and like we said, like we've been talking about this whole time, there's surgeries available. You can have vaginal or abdominal surgery. Your doctor might recommend a hysterectomy or the use of a tissue graft, which doesn't sound comfortable either. And if this kind of self-care is going on, one question that I had when we were looking into this was, what about... Sex. I mean, if, if all of this stuff is, is going on on your insides, it seems like that would totally make sex out of the question. But in fact, you can and it is okay to have sex with prolapse. This was coming from uh, Dr. Oz's website, ShareCare. And he says, it's safe to have sex if you have pelvic prolapse, although it may be uncomfortable. And the reason why the doctors explained that it was okay was, again, going back to this issue of gravity. And not to be too graphic, but when you are standing up, it pulls that tissue down. But when you are lying back, it will, in the words of one doctor, go back inside making it okay to have sex. But again, it might be, especially depending on the degree of the prolapse, it might be a little uncomfortable. Okay, so it's been deemed safe to have sex, you know, when you have this condition. But if you are one of the people who had uh, a surgical treatment that involved inserting mesh into your vagina to hold your uterus in place... There could be issues. Um, in July 2011, the FDA found that risks of placing mesh through the vagina to repair pelvic organ prolapse may outweigh its benefits. And they found that the most frequently reported complications, in addition to pain during intercourse and bleeding, were that the mesh can become exposed or protrude from the vaginal tissue. There's a lot of pain involved, um, and you might have to have surgery. So they they suggested that healthcare providers should recognize that uh, prolapse can be treated without mesh because the whole mesh thing is a permanent solution. And so that could, if you do want to have sex with this condition, that could make it more difficult. Now we're talking about um, options for prolapse treatment. There's the, you know, temporary kinds of things you can do, self-care, surgeries for more permanent options. But in developing nations, this issue of prolapse can actually lead lead women not to the doctor necessarily, but 
to being cast out of their house and even out of their society. Yeah, the United Nations Population Fund has a section on this, actually. They say that many women are abandoned by their husbands and end up as social outcasts in their community, like Kristen said, because when these women experience this, their mobility is limited, and therefore that makes work, chores, and sex nearly impossible. And they end up having chronic back pain, urinary incontinence, things that might not sideline someone in the U.S. who has access to surgery, you know, when surgery is more readily available. Um, they looked in particular at Nepal, where fertility is very high and women carry heavy loads on their backs, which is a bad combination, to be honest. They said that one out of ten women are estimated to suffer from uterine prolapse in Nepal. Yeah, and as a result, an organization called Safe Motherhood in Nepal Federation launched a uterine prolapse alliance in 2007 to raise understanding about the causes and preventions, and they're working with the government to provide health programming to address these issues surrounding uh, prolapse. So while this might not have been the sunniest topic we have ever covered on the podcast, and frankly not the easiest one to discuss either, again, I think it's important to address health issues like these that are not talked about but do affect a lot of us, not just at home, but around the world. Yeah. So, and then I, I mean, I didn't, yeah, I didn't realize how common it was in anyone besides Tom's Aunt Martha. Right. Yeah, I, I really, I wasn't v- very aware of, uh, of much about it until now. And for the listeners who have made it through this entire prolapse episode, I applaud you. And for that, you'll receive listener mail about homeschooling as a palate cleanser. So if you have any letters to share with us, momstuff at discovery.com is where you can send them. And like I said, we've got a couple letters here about homeschool. I've got one here from Jess and she says she was homeschooled up until the eighth grade. Uh, she says, we, my parents moved around a lot, so it's easier to teach us at home rather than enroll us in a new school every year. We ordered our school books from the States and had regular school time. Socialization was not a problem since I have a very large family and we often lived with other families. My parents are German, and in Germany, homeschooling is against the law. Parents who wanted to homeschool their children can count on jail time and or fines. The law came into effect to hinder child labor. In Austria, where my parents settled down after traveling the world, there is an Austrian word that means compulsory education, which means children have to be educated. And we had to go to state school every year and do tests to prove that we were up to par. After a couple of years, my parents decided to send my younger siblings to school. Most didn't have a problem adjusting since they were very young. And I've also gone to school, but I have to say I found and still find it very tiring. I'm used to learning and researching on my own. And in school, everything takes longer. I worked through the material for a whole school year in three months. This is something you can't do in a school. Ironically enough, I now work as a school secretary and get to see the school system from the other side. So thanks for the little international insight from Jess. Okay, here's a different perspective on homeschooling from Amelia. She says that she wanted to mention the fact that some parents choose to homeschool their children for safety reasons. 
I'm from L.A., and it's pretty well known that public schools and cities this large tend to be quite violent and potentially unsafe places. So my brother and I were homeschooled for the first handful of years of our educations until my mom got a job teaching at a small local private school working in exchange for our tuition. However, even the small private school, though wonderful, was lacking in a few areas. At one point, my older brother begged to be allowed to attend public school, and my mom finally caved. It only took one day there for my brother to realize he wasn't going to be comfortable walking through a metal detector every morning at 8 a.m. and being searched for weapons alongside his classmates in a place with 14-foot fences that resembled a prison. It's a parent's job to ensure their children are safe and to keep them from potentially dangerous environments. So it's not surprising to see more parents choosing to homeschool their kids when the local schooling options are so scary, unless they happen to be well off enough financially to afford very expensive private schools. All in all, I had a wonderful childhood, and looking back, I would not trade my education for any other. I had a small group of adults who were dedicated to giving me the best education possible. And while they weren't perfect and I missed out on a few things, the extra attention that I received uh, compared to public schooled friends stuck in classrooms of 30-plus kids meant that I got a better grasp on subjects that were difficult for me and the overall success of my education shows every day in my work. So thank you, Amelia, for the perspective. And thanks to everyone who's written in. Momstuff at discovery.com is where you can send your letters. And you can also find us on Facebook, like us there, and follow us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. And you can also now find us on Tumblr as well, StuffMomNeverToldYou.tumblr.com. And as always, you can make yourself a little bit smarter during the week by heading over to our website. It's HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?